Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're a show that tackles some tough topics, and we deal a lot with intimate partner violence and the courts and gendered violence, that kind of thing. Today we're talking about that, but we're talking about it with a little bit different take on it. You know, usually, and and I have worked in in this field and and been interested in this field for quite a number of years now, and when we talk about domestic violence or intimate partner violence or violence against women, we tend to talk about it as if it's all the same everywhere you go, and it's not. Um, There are regional differences. There are racial differences. There are differences between individuals, but we don't talk about that a lot. One of the things that we're going to do today with our two special guests is we're going to be talking about some of those differences, especially when it comes to urban, suburban, and rural. I have with me Callie Renison. Callie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And I also have, let me make sure I pronounce it correctly, Catherine Dubois. That's it. Yes. Good afternoon. Okay. Great. Catherine, you, um, I'm going to start by introducing you first. You're an associate professor at Washington State University in Vancouver, Washington, so my neck of the woods. I'm a little north of you. And uh, he, beginning with some research uh, in, toward a Ph.D. in criminology uh, from Simon Fraser University on alcohol and violence among the Inuit of the Eastern Canadian Arctic. So pretty, pretty specific um, the work that you're doing right now, and, and that should give us a a good background. Callie, I also, I'm going to switch here on my computer, so that takes me a moment. But Callie, you're a professor and the former former associate dean of faculty affairs in the School of Public Affairs at UC Denver, my alma mater. So welcome. Thank you. Good. So I'm a country girl, and I have always felt, especially the older I get and the more urbanized my, my living area becomes, there's differences. There's a lot of differences that I see between city folk and country folk. But I never really thought a lot about differences in geography when it comes to intimate partner violence. Callie, you and Catherine did some research. What led to your doing that research? Well, I mean, this was Catherine's idea. Um, I'd done some work in the past looking at intimate partner violence and other sorts of uh, violent uh, estimates by place, and I used a very common measure that kind of uh, broke up place by urban, suburban, rural, published a lot of things on it, got involved, um, and I'll let Catherine describe a little bit more, but Catherine noticed a problem with some of this research, and so we got together and talked about ways that it could be improved. So, uh, Catherine, I don't know if you want to share more what brought you to the place. Yeah, I mean, part of it is are these types of studies where we try to define places by rural, just looking at it, it just didn't make sense on its face the way that they're doing it. Uh, and so I tried to find another way to get at it. Who's the they, Catherine? Uh, people, I mean, 50 years worth of research uh, looking at victimization, not only violence against women, but just victimization in general, uh, mm-hmm. using nationally representative samples to where they've uh, uh pretty much always identified places as being rural as uh, non-metropolitan, essentially. So there's not even a, a, a definition. It's just the, it's a, it's the absence of being metropolitan that they use. And just on its face, it yeah. doesn't stand up. Okay. And, I, and, yeah. and let me add, too, real quick, that I'm one of the they. I've published work using urban, suburban, rural looking at violence against women, but also overall victimization. And one of the things that I really love about Dunn 
is that this is like science happening the way it should. It's moving ahead, looking back at the imperfections and trying to do better and get better estimates. So I think it's really exciting, although you can look at some of my past work and, and now identify that using urban, suburban, rural as a way to, to um, identify place, it needed to be done better. And this work does it better. Okay. And part of part of it part of it is I I had the luxury of being able to uh, spend had a sabbatical, so I had the time to be able to spend with the data and really question what was going on, and you know so when people continually use these measures over and over and over again out of, I think it's it's not lazy per se. I think it's just that people are rushed and they have so much to do that they don't take the time to be able to question things. And so I was able to do that, and uh, and based upon that, we were able to put together a pretty interesting paper. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why, how were you able to do that when other people weren't? Just because you saw it, or did you do something different? Yeah, well, the, this data set that Callie's been, Callie's the expert on the National Crime Victimization Survey. I've been working with it for a couple of years, but that's, you know, Callie, I won't say how long she's been working with it, but for a long time, <laughs> she's the expert on it. Uh, uh, I, I, I found a way just just trying to work with, I mean, it's, it's this data set where it goes back to 19, well, 1973, but we have data that, that's usable because they changed it over the years. Uh, going back to 1993, I believe we used in this paper here. And it's interviews with over, it's, it's uh, interviews with over 4 million people over that period of wow. time. And uh, it's a very complex survey in terms of skip patterns and, uh, you know, it's done by the Census Bureau every every six months. It's uh, just an amazing data source, and they love to put it out there for people to do this type of analysis on. And we had the, you know, so I've had the data, looking at it, and just finding different ways of, of trying to analyze it and bring things together. I was able to, there was another variable in there that nobody had ever used to uh, look at places. And so what I was able to do is combine that variable with the urban-suburban world uh, variable that everybody always uses, it came up with a pretty different way of looking at things. Okay, so what is that different way? I mean, if we're looking at geographic differences, how else do you divide it? Well, there's the there's the dividing things based upon counties, and that's the way that we do it now. So the urban, suburban, rural is essentially if you're an urban core, then you're urban. If you're within a county that has an urban core or you're, you're quote, you're next to one, uh, you're considered suburban. And then rural is anything that's not urban or non-metropolitan. Those are based on counties as units of analysis. You're saying that's the way it's been done, but that's what you wanted to do differently? Yeah, that's the way that it's been done for the past 50 years. Right. Okay. And in the paper, too, we identify some of the issues with that. So we take, you know, even point out some areas. For example, using that way that it's been done over time, East Los Angeles becomes a suburban area. And South Park, Colorado, which is up in the mountains, becomes a suburban area. And it's only because it's near an urban center, like it's in a county next to the urban center. But if you were to fly over it and drive through it, you would not look at this and go, wow, I'm in the suburbs at all. So that, you know, that was a real weakness of it. And we think that that weakness in part explains why past research is mixed on looking, do rural areas have higher rates of victimization than other areas? Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no. Um, and so there's all these mixed findings and kind of the, the, the central core of this is that it's got to be a measurement issue, and that's what it was, I think. 
in Cali's isn't one of the dangers of the way that the the crime victims uh, um, organization did it that that's what that provided data that then influenced funding for this mm-hmm. issue for different areas. Is that correct? Well, yes, people definitely use findings from this data set. And, you know, it's not a bad data set. It's the second largest survey collected by the government. It's probably one of the most tested um, and examined and improved data sets that are out there. So it's not that the data set is bad. The, the two measures that are in there have just been used in a way they were not intended to be used. And I think over time, you know, well, people have always used this as the measure. I'm going to use this as a measure. There's a history to it. And what Catherine is able to do is stop, dig, look into the history of these measures and find out these were never intended to be used that way. So by using two existing measures, instead of having an urban, suburban, rural breakdown, what we came up with was actually six categories of place which I think has greater face value, face validity, because, you know, now we're talking about, you know, dispersed rural, which is what when you fly over and you see a lot of farmland and very um, low density, this is what we think of as rural, right? But you see a Uh small town also, or we talk about enclaves and we talk about exurbs and the urban core. So I think it just does a better job of, as any of us drive through an area that, I think the categories that came out of this make a lot more sense than driving through South Park, Colorado and thinking, well, I'm in a suburb because nobody thinks that when they're there. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I see that, Catherine, you might be familiar with the, my area, uh, which is on the, um, where I'm just, I am a quarter mile from the boundary for the urban growth um, um, designation for King County. And King County stretches from the top of a mountain all the way down um, to Puget Sound, a, a huge, huge high population urban core. Um, so if you're just looking at King County, um, it's, it's diverse. I mean, you, you've got everything from a you know, deserted mountaintop all the way down to, you know, huge, huge industry. Um, but you said that the way you're doing it now is by looking at counties. So if you're looking at counties, this county would be quite an anomaly to the, your way of doing it, would it not, Catherine? Yes. So the, but, uh, the key word that Callie was talking about is flying over places. And, and mm-hmm. basically, when we, when we think of rural places, that's sort of, if you look out the plane window, you're able to see where people are living next to one another. And the, what we're able to do with our measure is we combine two measures that are in the data set. One of them is based upon the counties, but the other one is based upon the Census Bureau's notion of urban and rural. And the census notion of urban and rural is a place that has a certain population density of uh, and a certain number of people living together. Uh, and when we combine those two measures, then we're able to break it down into places that are either small towns or dispersed rural areas. Hey, Catherine, did we just lose you? I think we did. Um, yeah, Callie, we just lost um, Catherine. I'm going to try and dial her again and okay. um, make sure that, that we get her up. But meanwhile, why was there a need for this? I think the why biggest drive for it um, is just the mixed findings. I mean, it, like you say, research like this is used 
to direct policy. It's used to direct where resources go. And when some research is saying rural has the same um, estimates of intimate partner violence as urban, then that's going to determine monies going to shelters or to, or to assist victims, right? Or if you have one that yeah. says urban is higher than rural, well, that means more money is going to go to urban areas, and that's a problem. And so I think getting more accurate measurement is really important. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the, I think, the best findings in terms of research is always fun and very interesting is that we found that the highest rates of intimate partner violence were found in what we identify as small towns, not the dispersed rural, but the smaller towns. And there's a lot of qualitative research and other research where this makes more sense to us. Um, hopefully, Catherine can maybe talk about it a little bit when she gets back on, but she also was raised in an yeah. urban or a rural area. Yeah. At first I thought, oh my um, God, I messed something up. <laughs> but but she was raised in a rural area too. So she found the existing research not to match up with her experiences, which I think is where the um, curiosity was first peaked. Catherine, are you back with us now? I am, yes. I had a they said network okay. failure, so. Oh dear. There's no, there, you know, down in those, those areas, there's no avoiding that. So that's fine. I, I think mm -hmm. our audience has heard a phone, a phone ring before, so it's fine. Um, we were just, Callie and I, while, we, while you were dropped, we were talking about um, the, um, you know, the, the necessity for getting more accurate data based on place and designations of place. And of course, we come back to that funding thing. Um, one of the things that I had read is that with the National Crime Victims Study, um, if uh, that they they configured or maybe it's I don't know exactly where I heard this somewhere. So um, if this is you know not accurate in any way, feel free to just pounce on me. Um, but my understanding from uh, someone that I spoke with is that when federal organizations or funding organizations use that crime victims data the way it is right now, they base the funding on quantities rather than percentages. So in other words, if you have a, a population center that has, you know, 100,000 people and, uh, or say, say 100 people and uh, eight of them experience domestic violence, then the funding is for eight uh, for that geographic area. But if you have a, a rural area where you have 50 people, then and and of those 50 people, you know, seven experience intimate partner violence, then you're funded at seven. You're not funded based on the need, the level of need, because it's such a higher proportion of victimization. Now, is there any wave of truth to that? Is there anything attached to the way things actually happen to what I just said? Probably one of the problems with the way this data is usually analyzed is we analyze it based upon the incidence of victimization. And so you would have an incidence rate of, say, you know, 20 per 100,000 people. And that could be 20 incidents of, of intimate partner violence, but that could be 10 victims or five victims or 20 victims or one victim. Mm -hmm. A much better way of doing it would be to look at the prevalence. So how many women are being victimized? And generally, that's not done either. Well, I, uh, if it is done, I think, it's, uh, you know, the, anecdotally, people tend to think that it's the same women over and over and over. But it, I don't know if that's true. But I've, I've yeah, heard I mean, people I think, make comments. Yeah. 
Yeah, based on the National Crime Victimization Survey and you know lots of research, it's something that we call the uh, you know it's repeat victimization. It's just like offenders. Offenders out there, everybody doesn't like commit one violent offense in their life and then desist and go on and lead a, a regular life. It's usually the one person who commits a lot of offenses. And what research has shown, unfortunately, is that victimization is the same way, and that people are victims of repeat victimization. So you can have one person who has been victimized many, many, many times. If you count the number of victimizations, it looks like, let's just call it 100 victimizations. That does not mean 100 people. That means one person 100 times. So um, yeah, repeat victimization is definitely a very real thing. and. Um, I'll go out a little bit on a tangent here as well, is that another one of the problems and challenges of measuring intimate partner violence is, is that like a lot of crimes, a lot of, like a lot of violence, it's not easy to count it, right? If somebody comes in and robs you, that's easy. That's a very discreet event. There was a robbery, it started and it ended. When you're looking at things like intimate partner violence or bullying, um, these are ongoing events. And one of the challenges criminologists have uh, is how do you measure that? If somebody meets somebody and is victimized every single day for two years, how many victimizations is that? Is it one really big one? Or is that, you know, 700 or whatever days? Does that mean 700 victimizations? So there's a lot of challenges in, in measuring it in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and let's back up. Why is there another reason besides funding that it's important to measure? Why do we need Oh, to yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We absolutely have to account. Um, it, it's a part of the whole package, right? People who fund want to see quantitative numbers. They want to see that there is an issue that we should be putting taxpayer dollars to, right? Um, I personally don't think, I mean, big issues with big numbers are important, but you know, you look at something like rape and over time the um, rape has gone down, but that doesn't mean we should pull away attention. So yeah, it does get, it gets funders attention. It gets tax, um, the way tax dollars are dispersed, it gets that attention, but it also is used for educational purposes, right? If we didn't have any estimates of any of this stuff, then it would be people just flying by the seat of their pants going, I don't know, I think this, this is a really bad issue. Oh, I think that you know X, XYZ is happening a lot. Here we can look at data, although imperfect, all research is imperfect, and get an idea that something is happening. So, um, and people can be educated and protect themselves against it. Um, so I think there's a lot of good reasons to count these things. Absolutely. I, 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 I think it might be useful if you consider the reason why we first started doing victimization surveys some 50 years ago was mm-hmm. that we didn't know, we didn't have an idea about how much crime was going unreported to the police. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we do now, and that's one of the reasons why they first started doing these victimization surveys to actually to get, to get nationwide estimates of of assault, nationwide estimates of robbery, nationwide estimates of rape, nationwide estimates of the various property crimes. And to be able to put those up against police statistics to get a sense of what they refer to as a dark figure. You know, they did that with the Johnson administration's uh, commission on crime. And it was part of that whole, whole movement that gave us the victimization survey to where we have that understanding now that, you know, there's a lot of crimes that the police never find out about. We would never have known that without victimization surveys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's had a whole other, you know, educational issue um, and mm-hmm. you know, services issue that that would impact. I can see that. Okay. Let's get to your study because your study is, is quite interesting. So you guys decided to look at things differently. And you've told us that one of the things that you did was to come up with more 
accurate or more um, realistic designations for place. What else did you find? Well, one of one of the things we looked at, we wanted to come up. I think our our measure, you know, we're rethinking this, but I think it's just more meaningful in terms of what people think of in terms of, of rural places. What the research has generally shown, so there's been eight or nine studies where they use the urban, suburban, rural breakdown of trying to compare uh, places in terms of violence. And those, that research has either shown that women, that, that there's a higher incidence of victimization in places where, uh, that are urban relative to places that are suburban or rural, or they've shown no difference at all. Our research, what we okay. found in breaking things down to where we were able to look at places that are that have a, a small towns or dispersed rural areas or, or, or urban cores or suburbs or exurbs or the uh, enclaves was that it's actually the small towns that have the highest rates of vict- intimate partner uh, violence. Why? Any reasons why that you can think of? I mean, I we think have, our study can't answer that totally, but I think we can speculate, right? And a part of it, mm-hmm. it just has to do when you have a small town, everybody knows each other, right? You have fewer resources. Maybe the women there, the men who are being victimized this way, have less opportunity to get out of the situation. I mean, I think those are, those are some um, pretty solid speculations. Oh, one of the things yeah, well, I, want, I want to back up a little bit because I'm taking notes here and I want to make sure I do it correctly. Um, because you were very specific about pointing out the difference between prevalence and occurrence and or incidence. Um, mm-hmm. In small towns, are we talking about prevalence of victimization or are we talking about numbers of victims? This paper that we just got published is based upon the incidence, but Callie and I have been working on another analysis, actually looking at the prevalence, and we found the same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so just in terms of the, yeah. So, and and actually, the prevalence is much better, much preferable, and it's so much easier to talk about because you can talk about risk or the proportion of women that are being victimized. And what we found is the same sort of thing: is in these small towns, uh, women from those small towns are at a greater risk of being the victim of intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. So we're talking both quantity and um, frequency. Uh, uh, or, or the, both the uh, numbers of victims as well as the number of incidents that are that occur in small towns are greater than in other geographic areas. Exactly. exactly. Once you take into account population differences, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're just talking yeah. numbers, the more number of people you have. So, I mean, it, it, you have right. to equate all that stuff. Um, so, okay. So, you can speculate why that might be. Um, and and I always say probably that's a role for another study, right? Um, but mm-hmm. you can speculate what this might be. Um, is this leading to other studies? I mean, you indicated that you're going to be working on one on prevalence, but is are you looking specifically at all of the geographic areas or the small towns? It's it's making the same comparison we've made in this paper. One one of the problems with the I mean, one of the problems with these in this victimization survey is it doesn't ask the types of questions that, that would help us to be able to answer why there are those differences. Any anytime you do a survey, I, I I think of surveys as being real estate, and you can only spend so much time with people when you're giving them the survey. So you have to be very selective about the types of questions that you ask. And so we aren't able to ask the types of questions that would help us understand 
what it is about these places that, that, lead, to incre- that lead to an increased uh, incidence and prevalence of intimate partner violence. Yeah, and I think one of the cool things about the paper, too, is by presenting this better measure of place and, you know, and people recognize that we can't say why. Well, this is a great starting point for a lot of qualitative researchers to go to a small town and find out why or to go to the, all, six, all six different types of place locations and do a comparison. I mean, some of the why questions I think are better suited to qualitative research where somebody can sit down and have an in-depth discussion with a lot of individuals. Mm-hmm. Well, I have, I have mixed feelings about qualitative research because you can't do it with very many, you know, I mean, so you have, you can, right. I mean, what, so if you, what happens if you have 10 people in the small town and you interview them and then you make conclusions um, based on the general, you know, all the rest of the women out there that are being victimized based on these 10, but it turns out that you have 10 that are not representative of all of them. So I think Well, in general, yeah. Yeah, qualitative research can be probability-based. I mean, it could be representative, but sometimes it's not, right? Um, But that's not necessarily the goal of it. So say a consortium of us get together, and there's 40 of us researchers interested in it, and each of us live in either urban, suburban, you know, dispersed rural, small town, and then we each decide to go to those areas and talk to 10 people each. So maybe we could end up with, say, 100 people from each area. It's true that it may not be representative and it may not be generalizable of the larger nation, but the kind of questions we can ask can um, reveal some information that then possibly you can go back and do some more quantitative. So it's sort of like a, you know, it's like a circle. You do some qualitative research to bring up questions and you could do the quantitative research, which brings up questions and you go round and round and and together they, they paint a bigger picture. When I teach research methods and statistics, I tell my students that in my mind, quantitative research is like the skeleton and qualitative research puts the meat on the bones. Um, And so I think Mm. both are really necessary to get the full picture of an issue. Neither Mm -hmm. one can do it all. The the other thing we're going to, the other thing that we're going to be able to do is to do an analysis of homicide data. So looking at, uh, so so looking at, you know, uh, 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 intimate partner homicide deaths, and we have pretty decent data on that. And the good thing about using that data is we're able to uh, connect things to our geographical understanding so that we're able to look to, to things about the jurisdiction in which the homicides are occurring. Uh, I think that'll help us answer some of these questions in terms of, of why it is that we're seeing these differences between the, between the small towns and the dispersed rural areas. Mm-hmm. Well, and that brings me to a question. Um, we're talking quantity and prevalent, you know, we're talking the numbers of, of events as well as the numbers of victims in your study, but are we talking about the quality of the abuse? Are we talking about the type of abuse? Um, frequency and prevalence is, is, has to do with how often or how many, but what about the kinds of abuse? Is that different, or did your study not cover that? We, the, the we na- yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Catherine. I'm sorry. The, yeah, the national one of the downsides of using this National Crime Victimization Survey is it only asks about physical assault or or sexual violence also. So it doesn't ask about you know psychological abuse, coercive control. It doesn't have the types of questions where you ask about you know threats to people's pets. Uh, it uh, we don't get the full range of behaviors that are uh, that are problematic in terms of intimate partner violence. So we don't 
we're, we're not able to just like we're not able to distinguish between a sort of a coercive controlling domestic terrorism type of violence relative to a you know a, a common couple of violence people who, who just can't work don't know how to do relationships um you know, the, 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 the data set leaves a lot to be desired to be able to really dig into the things that we'd like to be able to dig into. But this new study that you're working on, you are looking at homicide data. So at least that's one, you know, I mean, that's one uh, type of severe abuse, obviously, um, yes. that, that you'd be able to look at. But as far as breaking it down into other things, um, and of course, you know, culturally, I mean, it's only been the last, what, 10 years that we've started to look at uh, intimate partner violence as more than just broken bones and bruises. You know, we we haven't culturally and or so socially anyway. I think you would be hard pressed to find a single person who would say, yeah, it's fine if he, you know, if somebody gives a, an intimate partner a black eye. But if you start talking about the bullying or the crazy making or all the, you know, financial abuse, et cetera, et cetera, you would be hard pressed, I think, to get universal agreement that that is in fact abuse. So. You know, it doesn't surprise me that the previous studies reflect those attitudes as to what abuse is. That, that makes sense. Right. And two, kind of remembering why the National Crime Victimization Survey was started, and it was started as a complementary data set for, for police data. Police data only has what's reported to the police, and it could be subject to manipulation, right? Um, and so yeah. this, that's why the NCBS has the similar crimes as what we see in police data. And police data doesn't it also you can't go to the UCR and find emotional terrorism or something like that. But it's changing too. the The data set does change uh, over time to kind of reflect the way that we see things. For example, in 1992, the NCBS started gathering information on sexual assault, which it didn't do before. Um, but it's slow. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in looking at this data, you, what is, what is your goal? in doing this? Um, what did you guys start out by saying, okay, we're going to go through this, you know, this study and we're going to do this survey and we're going to gather this data and we're going to massage it and we're going to analyze it. Um, and why, what was your stated goal for doing this, this research? I, I, I mean, part of it is to get a sense and an understanding of, of violence in, in, in places that are non-metropolitan. Uh, you know, Part part of the research we did when I was I've done some uh, survey research up in Alaska trying to get a sense of how things work up there, and I think when you look at rural areas, it really it really makes things it cuts things to the core. It gets you down to very basics about uh, about about violence and having understanding of things like service availability and understanding things like I. I when I teach I talk about the three I's. I talk about the uh, impunity. That's it's, it's afforded abusers by isolation that nobody can, nobody's going to hear the violence. I talk about immobility in terms of if you're in an isolated rural area, it's hard for you to, to get help. And I talk about the inaccessibility of services. And so I think when we look at rural areas, we tend to think of those sorts of things. And I think this type of research is letting us test to see whether those are actually the things that are leading to the violence or whether there's something else. Right. And I think for me, I mean, these are, these are all absolutely solid, but also for me, just overall looking at violence against women in the research that I do, a lot of it is to keep banging the drums, to keep putting out numbers, to keep reminding people that this happens because our criminal justice system 
I think, tends not to look as seriously at the violence as experienced predominantly by women, that sexual violence and partner violence. So I think that keeping, keeping the research out there and keeping this in the forefront is really important. I think another uh, part of it that I, I really like this part of it is it is a great reminder to researchers to take the time to stop and think about some of the measures that we've just used traditionally and to reflect, mm -hmm. is this measure good? Is it doing what I think it's doing? And granted, we're all as busy as anybody else out there. And so often we don't feel we have the time to get to sit and do that, but it is an excellent reminder that that needs to be done. And that's a part of doing good research. Well, part of doing, I, I, I may have mentioned to you, I'm a graduate student right now working on um, my, my PhD in organizational psych uh, with a focus in gender violence. And my frustration, uh, you know, as an as a older person who's not the typical student age and who's got life experience, blah, 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 oh, my God, does academia strangle you, um, mm -hmm. in my view. You know, I mean, it, it is so counterproductive to actually accomplishing something. I don't know how you people who live in it survive. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find it one you know, of the most that's, that's, that's funny because if you talk to, talk to a lot of people in the general public, they'll tell you how we have summers off and we have it so easy as we only teach two classes. And and uh, I think yeah. most of us have just got tired of trying to respond to that, but it is a challenge. It's like a lot of people out there doing a lot of work. It's an all-the-time work. I think, too, that a lot of people who do research, I mean, you can't do research you don't care about, and it's something that consumes us. So we're doing it all the time and thinking about it all the time, <laughs> but yeah, it can be well, it can I'm definitely be challenging. Great, I'm, I'm putting uh, you know I mean I'm thinking the IRB, the institutional, you know the uh, the constraints that are placed upon at least students. I mean I'm hopeful that once you're no longer a student, you don't have quite the the same level of constraints. <laughs> but it's almost I, I mean, would say it gets like worse. <laughs> It's yeah. like, do you people really want to know something or do you not? You know, do you just want to sit here and, and percolate in your little rules and, and you know, attitudes? I, it's extremely frustrating for me because yeah. anybody can go on SurveyMonkey and do something and get some data. Hopefully, it's yep. the educated people who will go there and ask the pertinent questions and be able to analyze them. But with all of these constraints, I mean, I see media surveys as becoming – at least in popular culture, uh, becoming having exactly the same weight as a, a, mm -hmm. a, 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 a an academic study, which is shameful. And it as is. I said, from yeah. my standpoint, anyway, it's like, are is academia shooting itself in the foot? Are are they becoming irrelevant because of these constraints that they put as they try desperately to make sure that they are. Uh, legitimate and following the rules and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Cool. Yeah. It, it's almost, yeah, it, it's like, wait a minute, you've gotten to a point where you're, you're not being productive anymore. That's how it seems to me but anyway. It's uh, definitely challenging. Well, no, I mean, it's definitely really challenging and uh, you probably can't throw a rock without hitting an academic researcher who has had frustrations with some of these structures that you talk about. But we are still getting things done, and I think it's just because we care. The point that you raise about kind of just anybody going on a survey monkey and gathering data is a frustrating one. Um, and so it's why when I teach, and you know, I wish that we could do more to get this in the public, that I spend a lot of time talking to students about being critical consumers of information. And there are basic uh -huh. questions that you can ask. 
you know, there are, there's data out there, but some data are much better than other data. And a lot of people don't understand those differences. There's a book that's really excellent called um, Damned Lies and Statistics by Joel Best. It's just a, you know, it's not very expensive. It's written for the general public. And this is an excellent book and it's fun to read that can help somebody become a better critical consumer of this information and to start to parse out some of the garbage that's out there and to identify some of the better research to get real answers from. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, you know, in, 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 go ahead, Catherine. In, ter in terms of the constraints on on researchers, it's uh, I mean, I, I I understand that, and I think that's why some of the research that Callie and I do look at these secondary data sets that we don't have those types of constraints because all of the uh, all of the work that's done to make sure that the information is is confidential and that is you know that the rights of, of, of survey participants are protected, that's already been mm -hmm. done for us. But I mean, that type of, those types of constraints, you know, we all have our uh, ethical blind spots. None of us would ever mm -hmm. do harm to anybody, right? And so sometimes those yeah. sorts of things are put in front of us, they are frustrated and they are difficult to deal with. They are, you know, they're laborious sometimes in terms of dealing with it, but they're there for good reasons sometimes too. Uh, especially yeah, when you're doing, uh, you know, especially when you're looking at things like violence against women, you know, yeah. I mean, just the, just the participation in that research can be dangerous for women. So some of the protocols right. we've developed over the years to be able to do these things are, are, are really mindful of that. Cause the last thing you want to do with your survey is get somebody hurt. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I've got a, a little fun story too about a particular student who he wanted to do, um, a project for his graduate course where he wanted to go interview veterans suffering from PTSD who tried to kill themselves. So he wanted to go ask him about it. And I'm sure he's still mad at me today. <laughs> and I told him under no circumstances would I allow him to do that because we do have to, you know, take care and cause no harm to the individual as much as we can. But, uh, but yeah, it can be very, very frustrating. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, there's that whole thing of, you know, how do you gather the da data? There, I mean, it's such a complex thing, you know. I mean, first of all, yes. how do you gather the data? How how do we know the data is really appropriate and, and, and generalizable, as you mentioned? And, you know, uh, how, mm -hmm. how do we know all that? And I always think of research, and I love research. I always think of research as standing in front of a dirty window in an old farmhouse that you can't see out that window. So you take your finger and you clean a little spot and you can see a little something, you know, you see a little something, maybe you see green from trees, but then you come back and you clear another little spot. Now you can see trees and maybe part of a road. And then you come and pretty soon, you know, to me, all of these research studies are clearing that little spot. You may not right. get an accurate or complete picture when you look through your little clean spot, but it's contributing um, hopefully right. down the road to an accurate and complete picture, unless there's an elephant standing in front of your section of the window, I guess. Um, yeah. which, which also can happen. <laughs> well, right. um, but it, it is perfect. And anybody who presents their research as being perfect, that right there to me is a, is a red flag saying, avoid that research. Nobody's research is perfect. Nobody's data is perfect. Nobody's no. approach is perfect. We state really clearly, even in this paper, that while we think that our new measure of place is better than what's been used in the past, it is not perfect. But again, that's just clearing off a little more window and getting a better picture of the truth, which is what we're all trying to do this for. Yeah. When we're talking, Catherine, uh, um, you mentioned a couple things that I took a note of. Um, you mentioned, uh, oh, in the first place, you mentioned three eyes. That you talk about the three eyes, but you actually mentioned four eyes. You said what did I mean? What, what? 
you said impunity, isolation, immobility, and inaccessibility. Well, I, I think of isolation as leading to those other three. Ah, okay. All right. So that isolation, I just wrote that down because it happened to be a word that started with I when you were talking about I words. Is that That's right. <laughs> now you see how my mind works. <laughs> there you go, um, yeah. <laughs> and you, we are also mentioning in this that, again, this is research and, and, you know, you haven't made a lot of conclusions because of this, but did your research lead you to either question or see correlations with attitudes and services based on geographic area? I, I think this leads us to question the my three eyes. That's I think that's the point I tried to get at, that there's something else going on in these small towns because they're, there's not necessarily the impunity or the immobility, but there's probably are some lack of services. Mm-hmm. So when you think about, so when you think about the difference of somebody living, you know, up, up along the Cascades in King County, even though you're a little bit isolated there, you're still going to have access to the services in the city. It's going to, at least it's going to be a lot easier for you to get there than it would be for somebody on the other side of the mountain who's yeah. living in a very isolated, dispersed rural area or in a small town. I mean, when you look at the sort of fiscal crisis we've been dealing with over the past 20 years, the, the, the social service agencies in those places are running on bare bones. They don't have the services available. And yet when you're in these small towns, there's an expectation that you will have those services. And that's opposed to places out once you get out into the prairies and into you know states like South Dakota, especially where women in in dispersed areas and isolated rural areas they do it on their own in terms of developing the services uh, that and you don't see those in the small towns that we're looking at that there's not that sort of self sufficiency mm-hmm. well, it's a different era as well I mean if you look at the history of domestic violence services. I mean, women started that on their own. It was one woman opening home to another woman, and pretty soon we had groups of women. And, we, you know, I mean, that's how the whole movement, if you want to call it that, started. But That's the whole, sec- that's the whole second wave, yeah. Yeah, that was 30, 40 years ago. And I'm, you know, I mean, I'm older than dirt, and I see, I don't see that kind of an attitude in our society anymore. I don't see the attitude of just, you know, roll up the sleeves and we can make it happen. Um, I see everything having to have rules and structure and approval of some sort of higher entity. Uh, you know, I, I just don't see how how that could happen for rural women or, you know, you know more isolated women today like it did 40 years ago. Is that just me? I think it's, I think, I think it's where you live. I mean, you go out to those some of those communities it's it's amazing what they're able to do and it's just it's out of necessity yeah yeah just just yeah. the just the resourcefulness that they're able to you know where they're able to put together things in terms of being able to protect people it's it, you know it's well you're also dealing in rural more or less urban areas um with different attitudes you know i mean you hang out in an urban area and you could be living 10 feet 20 feet away from somebody that you never meet or look in the eyes when you're in a less populated area, you know these people. You see them in the grocery store. And are you going to be willing to, first of all, seek help for something that could be potentially embarrassing or shaming or whatever, you know, uh, that you don't want other people to know about? Um, are, are you more likely to just 
try and deal with it on your own and keep it keep it the secret. I don't know. Did any of your research deal with any of that? Not this study per se, but some of the work I've done on in American Indian and Alaska Native communities, you know, we get we get a pretty good sense of how that sort of thing works. So one of the one of the villages we worked with, they were trying to bring counselors in to help people and that sort of thing, and nobody would go because they'd have to park their vehicle out in front, and everybody would know that they were with a counselor. So when they put a parking space mm-hmm. behind where nobody could see your vehicle, you know, their their services, you know, became very popular. It was, you know, basic things like that become important. Yeah, like the no-tell motel, all the parking is in the rear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody sees your car from the front road, yeah. <laughs> um, well, these are interesting things. These are interesting um, um I don't know what the proper word is, but the, the, these phenomena, these conditions, these proclivities are interesting, and they impact a great deal how victims of uh, intimate partner violence can receive services or get help, um, which is what the end goal is, is it not, is to make sure that people don't you know, live in conditions where they're being hurt. Um, in whatever way. Um, what what about future research for you guys? It sounds like you're really on a path to, you know, keep pursuing intimate partner violence and, uh, you know, geographic differences. Is that, in fact, the case? Do you have other studies down the road? Do you have ideas of what you want to do after you finish this newer one? I think what we talked about in terms of looking at homicide would be one. Uh, Cowie and our other co-author, Walter DeCastretti, has been involved in uh, looking at very specific forms of intimate partner violence in terms of marital status. So we have some research mm-hmm. we, want to, we want to do the analyses where we also look at that in terms of uh, women who are recently separated and recently divorced to get a sense of how those sort of rates play out in this sort of six type of areas that we want to look at. You know, one of the things that we do a lot of on this show is talk about uh, family courts. And I don't know if you're familiar with Joan Meyer's recent study. Well, I guess it's not so recent anymore. About a year ago, she came out with a really huge study. There have been smaller studies, et cetera, that indicate the huge problems um, that there are in family courts when it comes to custody of children and abuse. And um, her, her study just really, you know, blew my socks off. We were lucky that she came on the show and talked about it. Um, but are you looking at any of this? intimate partner violence as it pertains to child custody. I would be interested to know whether it is, whether Joan's finding, which basically is no matter how you look at it, if you're an abusive father and you go after your kids, you have a better chance of getting them than the mother. Um, And I would be interested to see if there is any real geographic differences in the likelihood of that happening. I mean, the data set that we've used so far doesn't gather that information, unfortunately. It's, you know, it's limited, like all data are. I think it could be an interesting way to go. But I I think, at least for me, that these data have so many possibilities. It's like a lifetime worth of research. So I think kind of sticking more a little bit with what Catherine mentioned, some of the things that we've got planned for the future, that'll keep us busy for several more years. And hopefully somebody out there who has access to data can then look at ours and go, hey, this is, I mean, they can take this categorization of place that we've identified and apply it to their data probably very easily. And I think it would be very Mm -hmm. fascinating and useful to see what they came up with. Well, and it sounds to me like what, you know, what you're doing is kind of recreating the parameters of how we define place 
And mm-hmm. what you're saying is that that could that those parameters, those different parameters, could then be used for not just IPV, but you know, pick your poison. Absolutely, it can be used across the board. And it's one of the things in the mm-hmm. paper that we talk about is who, who, you know, you always have to answer the who cares. Why is this research important? And one mm-hmm. of the reasons we think it is important is because it is not strictly useful only for intimate partner violence. It can be used for homicide. It could be used for property crimes. It could be used for all sorts of things out there, courts, the way the police interact. Um, as long as somebody has some measure of the area in terms of density and uh, you know, closeness to urban areas, they can use this categorization and run with it. So I think it can really just inform across the board for the criminal justice world and beyond, honestly. Yeah. Now, the national study, the crime victims, is that an ongoing thing? Do they keep adding to that every year? Yeah, the uh, NCVS is actually in the field almost every single day of the year. It's been ongoing since 1972, and that doesn't count all of the pre-testing with it. And it's what it is, it is not based on police data. Instead, interviewers go to people's homes and they talk to everybody in the house separately, age 12 or older, and ask about their experiences being victims of uh, violence and some other things. And I'm greatly simplifying this. And so it is constantly being added to and updated. The data sets come available for the public to use or researchers to use annually. And so um, that's what we use from 1993 to the, at the time the most current data that was available. Now, I said the data goes all the way back to 72. We didn't go back that far. And the reason we didn't go back that far is because in 1992, 93, there was a huge change in the, in the way the survey was gathered and also questions. It was improved and measurement was way better. And so we just tend to stick with the post-redesign data for that. But yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. a pretty awesome data set. And in fact, the methodology used for collecting the National Crime Victimization Survey has informed data collection around the world. It was the first done of this type. So you now have the um, International Crime Victimization Survey. There are other countries that have it. You have cities that use the same model. Uh, it's from a methodological standpoint, it's pretty cool. Well, it sounds very cool, except my little rural, humble, you know, mindset. I think if if you had come to where I lived in rural Ohio in farm country, you would not have gotten honest answers to that. You would have been told maybe a few things, but nobody, I mean, if there was a woman experiencing IPV, she would not have said that to any researcher who would have come into her home. So right, and that's, that that's the problem any survey, any survey deals with, is that you, all you can do is do your best to build rapport, to let people understand why you're doing it, that their information is going to be confidential, that it will not be shared with anybody else, and that's the best you can do. I mean, like giving them an IV of sodium pentothal would not be an ethical way to go, though you might get better data. So, right, and it's one of the reasons exactly, but it's one of the reasons why we know things like um, rape, sexual assault, intimate partner violence that we know these are underestimates, and even with the estimates that we get, they're too big. And so it is a problem. So say we're underestimating and nobody knows how much we're underestimating, right? Because it's unknown. But let's just guess that we're underestimating, you know, 500%. Um, It's still a valuable exercise to get the information. I mean, I find, and you know, teaching research methods classes, this is something students always say is, well, people are going to lie. And it's like, you know, people might lie, but what you'll find in a lot of cases, and, and certain topics are different, um, one of the hardest things when you're gathering data directly from people is like getting out of their house because people want to share their experiences frequently. Not everybody, right? But they want to share it. Well, they, they, yeah. 
the, you know, the stranger on the airplane with you where you, you know, you spill yeah. your guts because you're, you're there for three hours. You're never going to have to see him again. You know, maybe it's that thing. Um, right, so, right. I don't know. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and I know I myself have been in situations where I've been asked some intimate information that I could not believe that I would actually share. And I just did, you know, I just did because it just, you know, yeah. why not? Right. Um, yeah, so, I think I think people, you know, they know that somebody cares. They understand why the data are being gathered and what the importance is, and that's why it's so important for researchers to make that understood. You can't just assume somebody knows. Um, and it's one of the frustrations yeah. with a lot of people out there doing, and I'm air quoting, surveys to gather air quote data, that they're turning yeah. people off to um, completing surveys now. And it's one of the problems that the NCVS has had over time, but every other survey has, and that is that, more and more we've got a lower response rate. Now, our response rate is still giant. It's been, depending on what you're looking at, household response or person response, in the high 80s, low 90 percentiles. And I challenge you to find any other data source that has that high of a response. But but it is a problem. So, um, I mean, it's one of the things that I hope that people can discern that if it's a crap survey coming to their door or, you know, on their internet, mm -hmm you know, know that. But when it's somebody coming from a large, you know, multi-decade important survey that they can, that they will think this is worth my time. Yeah. You know, I'm the, a researcher too. <laughs> the pain they all went through trying to get it done. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I, when I teach in my class about the National Crime Victimization Survey, we always talk about who does it and the whole process. I mean, the, the survey itself is administered by the Census Bureau. So I, I joke that they need something to do in the nine years when they're not giving us the census, right? So they're doing they're doing all of these other surveys, but they're the experts. They're the ones who who are, who are able to build rapport with people, uh, yeah. so that we do get those eighty and ninety percent response rates, which are compared to most everything else, they're astronomical. And then yeah. also talking about you know what you think about what would happen in, in small town in rural Ohio. If you go into a survey and you have this survey and it's a survey about violence against women, I think you would get the reaction that you were talking about, Heather. But when you do it based upon it's just a crime survey, you're not going to mm -hmm. get that type of response. Where we're asking questions not only about uh, being uh, physically assaulted and, and sexually assaulted, and that sort of thing. we're also asking about being burglarized and, and vandalized and all those sorts of things. I think it, we're, we're getting at it in kind of a sideways fashion. So we're able to get past some of those reluctances. Oh, you sneaky researchers, you! <laughs> we're, 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 we're not as bad as psycho we're not as bad as psychologists, but yeah, sometimes it is a little sneaky. <laughs> now you're stepping on Well, listen, I've had a great time, and I, I'm sure our listeners have too, because you know we don't talk a lot about the process of doing the research. We also talk a lot about you know the the designations of uh, place and, and why that's important and in particularly uh, applying that to IPV. So I thank you. Real quickly, if you could give us the name of your study, because anybody can Google and, and get a study. So give us the name of your study and people who would like to read more uh, can go to it. Yeah. Now, um, a, I'll share the, I'll go ahead and show the title, but I think the other thing is that anybody can also email us and we can shoot out a copy of it too. Yeah, okay. so the title, of this, the title is Intimate Partner Violence in Small Towns, Dispersed Rural Areas, and Other Locations. Okay. Callie, Catherine, thank you so much for coming uh, on the show and talking about this. I find this fascinating talk. I appreciate it a great deal. And uh, I hope you'll come back as you progress in these studies because we want to know more about this. So we want you to share.
And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us again next week.